All right, everybody. Welcome to the Jason Timp podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day today to come hang out, talk some basketball with Tommy and I. I just got him on. Tommy, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing good, man. As always, thank you for having me on. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I was hoping it would be a little bit sooner, more close to the end of the finals, but um, I was very uh, archaic in my early attempts to get this going, and I had to get some stuff on the tech end up and running before I could really um, you know, get to any sort of off-season content. And I appreciate your patience, and I appreciate you taking the time. Um, I'm really excited to hear your take on the LeBron stuff, um, primarily today, we're going to focus on what Tommy has to say as kind of a rebuttal to everything that I said about LeBron uh, uh, last week. And we'll have a little bit of a give and take there. We're going to talk about where we think the uh, the top 10 list of the NBA stands as of right now. And then last but not least, what I want to start with is just really quickly um, talking about the NBA restart in December and particularly this idea that teams and particularly teams that made deep playoff runs could consider not uh, playing in the, at the start of the season. And so I just want to touch on that really quick and then we'll get to the fun stuff. But sure. my, my initial take on it, it's really simple. There are three uh, like absolute facts of this case. Fact number one, for every dollar that the NBA does not make, the players don't make 50 cents. So it's a, a revenue partnership. This is not a situation where the players can leverage uh, the, the owners out of money that wouldn't automatically leverage themselves out of money. And then fact number two, uh, in a normal offseason for two teams that play in the finals, you basically have from June to July, July to August, August to September, September to October off. And then you get back into training camp. And this season, every team had at least from March to April, April to May, May to June, June to July off. And for 14 teams who did not, you know, 14 minus the, what did they bring, five extra teams to the bubble or whatever. So for eight of the teams, they didn't play at all during this entire time. And for many of them, they've been off for several months since then. So the idea that the players have played more this season than they had in previous seasons is just not true. And then the last thing is that uh, every single game from Christmas Day this year, which was a Christmas that was considered ratings that were down from previous seasons, every single game from Christmas Day this year outrated every single playoff game, including the finals. So what does that mean? That means that the NBA very much needs to get back to their regular schedule so they can stop competing with, you know, elections every two years in the fall and with football every single year in the fall. It is very clear that the better schedule for them to be on is either October to June or December to July, something that goes in that general time frame. So the idea that I, while I sympathize with some of these teams like the Lakers and the Heat that'll have to do a quick turnaround, it's not like they're facing any sort of long-term wear and tear that's more than what they would in a normal season. They've had more time off in the last season than they normally would so I don't really understand that angle and the reality is it's a no-brainer for them not only for the health of the league but the simple fact that they will cost themselves money by delaying it on that 50-50 split what's your thoughts on that situation Tommy 
So I agree with basically everything you just laid out. And one thing I would actually add on to the tail end of that is the Olympics. Apparently, the Olympics are going to happen in 2021, or at least that's what people are saying. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's a huge deal to have the superstars there. Uh, but if we want to win Olympic gold, that obviously gives us the best chance. And the Olympics are set to go off right now earlier than normal from what I've seen. I've seen like a mid or late July timeline when they're usually, I, th- I think they usually start a little bit later than that. Yeah, it's um, usually late summer. Yep, exactly. It's usually August, I want to say. So if you just add that on top of it, we wouldn't have our starts for the Olympics if the season runs into August or September again. Um, but that being said, Chris Haynes tweeted about 25 minutes ago, Yahoo sources, substantial faction of players and star players pushing for a January 18th MLK Day start with free agency starting on December 1st. That would put teams like the Lakers and the Heat on more of a normal timeline in terms of an NBA offseason. It would still be a tiny bit shorter. Um, so like you were saying, I do sympathize with them, but they did have, it was basically a four and a half month break right in the mm-hmm. middle of the season. So in terms of rest, they shouldn't be feeling too far behind. It was a quick push in the bubble, but if, if this is, I've seen the number I've seen thrown around is about $500 million worth of losses. Um, if they do start at this MLK date versus December 22nd. Yeah, I've heard that number um, too. So if the plan is to bring in as much money as possible, they need to start in December. Um, yeah, yeah, I had I, not seen that Chris Haynes tweet yet. That's interesting. It uh, just dropped uh, right at noon, so 30 minutes ago. And I guess it, I guess it's not the most shocking thing in the world, but like to me it's like, like, of course you guys would rather wait till January. Like, like, what if someone told you that you were going to take a vacation, but you could take an extra month off? Like, of course they'd like to. I, I yeah. guarantee you, if, if for whatever reason in a normal season there was some reason to leverage it, I could see the players being like, let's start in November instead of October. I, without a doubt, the players would like that to be the case. It just, they have, in my opinion, they have no leverage. If I'm the NBA, I'm saying you're going to cost yourself money in the form of this 50-50 revenue split for, for the vast majority of the teams they are actually itching and ready to play. So we're making basically massive concessions for the sake of, you know, one or two teams or two or four teams, depending on uh, you know, where you feel about that. But it's like, also you're sacrificing that Christmas day element, which has always been a huge income day for the NBA. It's just, I really don't understand it uh, uh, from the standpoint of, you know, like, without a doubt, if you're LeBron, if you're, you know, Jimmy Butler, if you're even the Nuggets or the Celtics, it sucks. I get it. It sucks. But yep. this is just the nature of the business. What would have been your late season and playoff run, instead of taking place from March to June, is now going to take place from July to October. And and, the, and your off season is effectively going to be split in half. That's really all that happened. It's, it's that simple. And it's such a no-brainer. Yeah, uh, and, and I think lastly, the, the NBA starting later doesn't do anything at this point. Fans aren't going to be back in arenas no matter when they start, mm-hmm. unless they plan on starting in the summer, which isn't realistic. So fans aren't going to be back in the arenas either way. There, there's no point to push it back any further. Get mm-hmm. the season started, and like you're saying, have that Christmas Day game. Um, and I think – that it will feel more like a quote-unquote normal NBA season if they do do that, which gives them a better chance of getting better ratings. 
Yeah, and if I'm the NBA, I'm saying, fine, if you want to delay to January, now the finals are in July instead of June. Like, just do something. Not even if you have any intention of actually doing that, but just to attempt to leverage the players into understanding the obvious solution here. Exactly. Um, but on that note, I want to get to some of this fun stuff we had been talking about. So basically, sure. uh, I'm going to do a super quick rehash of, of what my LeBron thing was, because what I want to start with is your kind of, you know, uh, response to that, uh, for lack of a better phrase. But uh, essentially, for those of you who didn't hear it, I essentially said that before this year, LeBron had no case, in my opinion, to be the GOAT. I thought it was a, a mistake for players or for fans and for LeBron himself to make that stand. Uh, but that I do believe now he does have a case. I personally probably give a very slight edge to MJ still at this point. But I do believe that you could have a conversation about LeBron being the best basketball player ever, and it could make enough sense to have like a real conversation around it. And I said that the two things that that case has to be built on are one, his winning versatility. The fact that he's won in so many different ways to, to be clear, it's there have been six complete different roster configurations that he's either won a championship with taken to the finals or taken to within two games of the final two wins of the finals. And then the other big chunk of it would be his, Mental toughness, just the idea that while guys like Magic and Bird and, and Kareem and other players that were considered in that top five to seven range had seasons where they lost in the first round or the second round or the third round. Duncan is another great example of that. Whereas you have um, and Michael Jordan, like having retirements in the middle of his career to kind of refresh mentally. LeBron just kind of always had this ability to, di- to dig deep and to approach every single season with that same, you know, fervor that he did when he was winning. And I thought that those two things would be the main piece. And then the big third piece that he could add in the future that could eventually put him definitively over the top is the longevity piece because LeBron and MJ both won titles and finals MVPs at age 35. But now LeBron appears to be, you know, on the precipice of potentially adding a couple more. So my question to you, Tommy, is do you agree with the gist of what I'm saying? And then... Finally, where would you put LeBron all time after this season if you had a gun to your head? So I think I'm going to agree with you maybe a little bit more than you would expect because so I've laid this out on Twitter multiple times. There are now, I would say, four guys in NBA history to win four championships as the unquestioned best player on their team. Those guys are now Michael Jordan, Bill Russell, Tim Duncan, and now LeBron James. Because I would consider LeBron, even though AD is amazing, he's an incredible player. I would consider LeBron to be the best player on this Lakers team. And I, I don't think it's super close. I, I, don't, I, I don't see how they went anywhere near as many games without LeBron. I, I just don't see the case for AD being the best player. He's an incredible player, but he's more towards, we'll get into where he's at later in terms of league rankings. Um, but I don't see any case for LeBron not being the best player on this team. So that puts him in elite company, obviously. He's now one of four guys in NBA history who has done this, in my estimation. You could probably make an argument for Magic because you could say he was not the best player on the Lakers' first title team, but the next four he was. But if the, if we're saying unquestioned best player, then it's just those four guys. So he has put himself in elite company. Mm-hmm. Where I don't think his go case is maybe as strong as you think. Um for a couple reasons, mostly because I, I think a lot of it, and maybe not to you, a lot of it to a lot of people is getting to eight straight finals 
But where I would push back is, well, he did have the mental toughness to make the finals every year. He also did get a certain sense of reset in that he got to change teams halfway through that. When Jordan retired in 93, he had been with the same organization for nine years, and he had been with the same real group of guys for six or seven. Mm -hmm. Not really at any point in LeBron's career has he been with the same group of guys for that long, unless you count that first Cleveland stint. Mm -hmm. That's his longest run, yeah, seven years. Yeah, exactly. And even then, there was a lot of roster turnover. Tons of turnover, Mm -hmm. especially as they were trying to find pieces to fit around him. So my argument would be, while he didn't, necessarily you know he did make the finals every year which obviously is an incredible feat no matter who you're facing that the east was i would say historically weak especially towards the back half of that run i thought the front end especially the early miami years the east was still pretty good as we got towards the later miami years and then the cleveland years i thought the east was terrible uh, to be quite frank with you and he did and he did get that little reset where he gets to choose a new group of teammates so while he's still playing all those years He's, there is not that internal fatigue organizationally and from a chemistry standpoint of being around the same guys over and over and over and over again. And we even saw it in the short stint in Cleveland where, I mean, we know what Kyrie is at this point, but him and LeBron got sick of each other after three years. Mm-hmm. You know, if LeBron would have been with the same franchise for eight or nine, as Mike had, maybe he's maybe things look a little bit different. So uh, well, do I don't that? think the th- the only reason I would disagree with that specific point is like sure. like he he got along extremely well with Dwayne Wade and he's getting along extremely well with Anthony Davis and even Kevin Love who by for all intents and purposes was a guy who was a little bit of a loner that's kind of yeah. his personality even him and LeBron kind of figured it out towards the end so I think like a lot of times the Kyrie dynamic has shed a uh, like an unfair negative light on that relationship but the like my biggest pushback on the LeBron shuffling the deck thing is like to me the LeBron shuffling the deck thing is was his counter to some pretty unfortunate luck with his teammates over the years for instance I've always said like if LeBron was uh had Anthony Davis drafted a few years after him and he could spend his entire career with Anthony Davis, I don't think he ever leaves Cleveland to begin with. I think if Dwayne Wade stays healthy and is much of the same player as he was in 2011 throughout the 2012, 2013, 2014 seasons, I don't think he leaves Miami. And then if Kyrie stays and Kevin Love stays, and and honestly, like I think one of the biggest reasons he went to L.A. was the Kevin Durant thing with the Golden State Warriors. Like I think he that coupled with the Kyrie Irving uh the trade kind of made him realize he needed to kind of shuffle his deck again. But I think like for LeBron different than other stars that are in that top tier, he always was kind of put in a position where he could have admirably continued to fight with the same situation, but there wasn't really much of a realistic option. If you look at the goats, you got Michael Jordan who had Scottie Pippen for his entire prime. You've got Tim Duncan who arguably played with the greatest organization, you know, literally potentially in the history of, of modern. But NBA was that was that more Duncan or was that more the organization? We see where the organization is at now. They're middling. They struggle to keep Kawhi in, in with their organization, and now they're barely a playoff team. There's and truth Pop, to that. But Pop, Pop himself will give Tim, Tim Duncan more credit for anything for the organization than he'll take, and that's Pop being Pop par- partially. But I think there is a lot of truth to it. Duncan was the rock of that organization. 
I agree. And, I think it takes two, though. That, that's my point. Is like I think like if LeBron was in a similar situation where he had a good front office and they were good at drafting and they did have a couple of really key clutch moves over the course of the years that refreshed their roster, like Kawhi, like Manu Ginobili, stuff like that. I really do think LeBron would have stayed. That's kind of my key. My point is like. So then, what, like, my if, my rebuttal would be: What about Miami? Well, Miami. Uh, so Miami was. Towards the end, I really do think LeBron saw the writing on the wall with Dwayne Wade. Like That's I think, fair. so I like the the reality. Like you know, in 2012 and 2013, D Wade retooled his game to maintain impact, especially on the defensive end of the floor, and as a playmaker and as a mid range scorer. But the truth of the matter is, is that in my opinion, in in 2012 2013, Wade wasn't top three player in the league. Dwayne Wade, he was more like a kind of like we see Jimmy Butler now, like that guy in that 11 to 15 range who's extremely, although I know you disagree about Jimmy Butler, but, but <laughs> we'll get like, to that. <laughs> I, think, I, think that, I think that D. Wade had fallen significantly off of that point, and a lot of that shine was still on the apple, so to speak. So, it, you know, you look at the roster and it looked like it was incredible, but there, especially in, in those last three years, they leaned extremely heavily on LeBron. And, I mean, Bosch, you know, the reality is, is that Miami team was still good at the end. I mean, there's a reason why they made the finals in 2014. Bosch was really blossoming as a stretch five at that point. He was taking a lot more threes, making a lot more threes. But the reality is, is like Wade was Wade was barely playing. I think he only played like 50 games that season. When he did play, he was in the teens as far as points per game goes. He was a shell of himself offensively. I think LeBron saw the writing on the wall. And my whole point to that is like, you know, you know, like look at Kobe Bryant's career. You know, he was happy when he uh, was winning with Shaq. And then when him and Shaq, you know, lost uh, uh, a couple years in a row in 2003, 2004, he was kind of burnt out with that situation. Then he found himself without Shaq understanding that it was a lot harder to win than he thought. And then he threw a hissy fit and called uh, into a, a local sports radio uh, broadcast and, and demanded a trade. And like, but then all of a sudden he gets Pau Gasol and he's happy again, and now he wants to sure. stay in LA. And like, and, and, I, and, and I don't want to get I'm too into the weeds like, on the Kobe stuff, but I hear you there because I mean, look, I grew up in LA. All that stuff definitely happened, right? There was a time where he was very, very unhappy with the, with the organization, and LeBron, to his credit, took more things into his power. But I think that's also why, in a way, you can point to why he. I don't know if blame's the right word, but he deserves more blame for some of the ways his career has played out for maybe not winning, quote unquote, as much, even though he does have four championships in 17 years. So it's not like he hasn't won, but he has taken more control of his career for better or for worse than anybody in NBA history. Um, so with that comes probably more credit, which I think he gets a lot of, but it also comes more blame. And I think that's why you pointed to this yesterday, why he is so polarizing. Mm hmm. You know, well, I think I think it's like a trust issue thing. Like if you, sure. for instance, like I've been fortunate that I've been in relation. My marriage is is like you know rock solid and we're good. But like I'm, I've heard stories from friends of mine who have been cheated on or like things like that. Like trust issues linger and they change the way that you approach future relationships. And like I really do think LeBron was so scarred over by Dan Gilbert um, hmm. and Danny Ferry that he was like. I don't trust the front office. And then there was a big story in 2014, uh, uh, the Heat cut, I believe it was either they cut or traded Mike Miller uh, for salary relief. 
And LeBron, like before the finals, was deeply offended because he was like, why aren't you guys willing to spend the extra money to, to give us this depth that we need? Now, Mike Miller wouldn't have made a difference. But no. my point is, is like, I think that starting in Cleveland, LeBron kind of formed trust issues with the front office. And I really do think that his entire career is shaped by a simple premise that he's like, I've got to do this myself. Now, I agree. What My big point that I agree with you on is like, I do think you'll hear a lot of LeBron fans try to portray that as a like as a positive to LeBron, like as a oh, like LeBron didn't have help. So he did all these things. My my equation, my uh, way of rationalizing it is more that this was his version of having a, a great star teammate while players like Magic Johnson and Kareem had each other. And while MJ had Pippen, like LeBron had kind of a smorgasbord of, of, of supporting pieces because he shuffled the deck. And that, to me, kind of amounts to a similar type of effect to what those players had. I, what I'm saying is I'm not going to penalize LeBron for it either, you know, because I do think sure. you'll hear some detractors that will say that LeBron deserves criticism for shuffling the deck. When I think what that was was a guy who took his destiny into his own hands because he didn't want to have an Anthony Davis type situation where seven years go by and you made the playoffs twice. You know what I mean? Yeah, which is fair. I just think from my perspective, I would have trusted that Miami organization more just because Pat Riley's proven. I suppose wasn't as proven at the time. Now he's proven. Um, I would have trusted that organization to get it done more. Um, I agree with you on that. I agree. Yeah. I think it would have worked out still. I think exactly. would have won again in Miami. I mean, I mean, look, look at – Look at how they've recovered from losing LeBron. Nobody else has done even remotely close to this well. And it's been Cleveland mm-hmm. both times, so it's, t- it's tough to make to draw an apples-to-apples well, apples comparison there. Yeah, they missed the playoffs the following year, but Bosch had the, the, the blood clot thing. And they probably they, would have made it. And then they made it the next year, made it to the yep. second round. So I, And yep. they got to a game seven with Toronto where they would have had a chance to play Cleveland. I agree with you. I like, I'm just saying, like, I think LeBron got spooked by D-Wade's decline. Sure. And I think I think he had a meeting with Pat Riley, and Pat Riley was like, hey, man, I got uh, – what, what's the left-handed shooter from Duke? What's his name? Um, shooter from Duke. Uh, no, he, he might even uh, – he was the 6'10 white dude sh- shooter from Duke. Josh McRoberts? Josh McRoberts. So they, <laughs> Josh McRoberts, thank you. Yeah. Uh, Josh McRoberts and, uh, and Danny Granger, you know – uh, yeah, and you know, like, and we're going to re-sign Bosch to this big max contract, blah blah blah. And I think LeBron sat there and was like, "I don't know. I don't think I can do it with these guys." You know, yeah. and 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 I and it's it's ironic because you could make an argument that had he stayed in Miami, he would have won in 2015 as a result of Golden State being kind of green and uh, and I think D-Wade if they have a, just being I think if they have a full roster, a healthy roster, they probably do beat Golden State because they were. Yeah. Just mentally, they probably weren't there yet. And you could see that mm-hmm. in the first three games of the finals, in that 2015 finals. They probably weren't quite ready yet. They were just too young. They didn't have anybody with experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, I mean, I think we're getting too much into the weeds on on what LeBron should have done instead of just, you know, discussing, and partially my fault, but discussing. You're, you're fine. You know, yeah. Discussing, you know, he, he had, I thought this was his most dominant playoff. And some of that was prob- probably because two of his biggest competitors were out. But there was never a playoff run at any point in his career where his team looked this dominant throughout the entire run. Um, at no point did I think this Lakers team was going to lose to anybody. Me neither. You know, as much as I wanted to fool myself and, and make th- make myself think that Miami had a chance to pull off three straights and come back down from 3-1 in the finals, it wasn't going to happen. 
They were the Lakers were clearly the best team from start to finish. Um, and I think that does matter when you start talking about goat debates. So one of the things you point to is winning versatility, which I do, which I do think matters absolutely. LeBron can potentially win in more constructs than MJ. I'm not going to say if he can or can't because I would say MJ had probably nine or so title contention years. He started making the Eastern Conference Finals in 88. Um, And if you look at his career, even early in his early years, every time he lost in the playoffs, it was either to the NBA champion or the runner-up. Now, those early Bulls teams had no shot at winning titles, but as soon as Pippen became a reasonably good player, they were, quote-unquote, a contender. Mm -hmm. And that started with LeBron, or LeBron, Mike playing a more... Uh, I would say like heliocentric style where he was handling a lot of the ball handling duties. He was kind of doing everything. He was distributing, he was scoring. Um, and then Phil comes in, he kind of implements a triangle and then they go on kind of an unprecedented run of success in modern basketball. Um, so while LeBron might have a winning versatility argument, I would say it might not matter as much if one play is style of play is so dominant that nobody can really touch you. Right. So, LeBron has wanted more constructs, I would say, just because he has been on more different rosters. Uh, but even if you look at early Bulls, early 90s versus late Bulls, those rosters are a little bit different. Um, mm-hmm. I would say they had more scores on the early rosters, um, and then it was more kind of defensive and and um, playmakers on the later roster. They really relied on MJ for a lot of scoring in late years, especially because Pippen really started to decline offensively. If you look at it, his playoff numbers are horrific in the late 90s. They're like worse than D-Wade when, at the end of that Miami run. Um, so they really, really relied on NBA for a lot of scoring, and it was a different game. Uh, the pace was nowhere near as fast. Teams didn't shoot as many threes, which is why it's so tough to do era-to-era comparisons. Um, but point being, I think just from what we've seen, while... Like I've said, LeBron might be more versatile winning-wise. I think the Bulls style of play was more dominant to their era, which is the only way we can really do this, right? It's impossible to insert these guys into each other's eras, so we have to look at what they did in their era. Um, For sure. I mean, everybody, like, there is no definitive answer to any of these questions. Like, like, even, you know, uh, Michael Jordan before, you know, 2016, when, when some of the crazier LeBron fans jumped on the LeBron train, Michael Jordan was was as close to a consensus uh, uh, as close to a consensus uh, you know goat that you'll find in any sport literally Absolutely. like and so from that standpoint like you know uh, even at that moment in time it still was contextualized by people saying you know oh well Bill Russell had eleven titles but he did it in an era where there were barely any teams and teams. he yeah. also. He also had by far the most talent on his roster, you know, and all this other stuff. And you would have, you know, Kareem, same thing. Like, oh, well, Kareem, you know, his career was elongated by magic. And he won a few at the end of his career when he wasn't nearly as good as he was at the beginning. Yeah, the and second all this or third stuff. best player on the team, yeah. Exactly. Like, sure. you're making all of these – you're making all these contextualizations. And so the reality is you can do that with the LeBron-MJ debate all day. Yep. And my, my angle is, is like – that's why what I think is interesting is the cases, right? Because – like MJ's case is like you said, it's not, it's not versatility. It's just a huge amount of the same thing. And yeah. that, but that's, that's a good case. The case being like, you know, for, for the better part of a decade, if this dude was on the court, he lost like, and, and that was the thing. And, and from that standpoint, 
like, uh, I agree with you. You can only be measured definitively against your era. You know, like that, that's the thing. Like we can at least look back, you know, let's say LeBron and Steph both retire tomorrow. Like you can at least look back on the previous, you know, eight, nine years and be like, okay, in this era, LeBron won more. So like, there's this evidence that I can present to you that this guy's better than this guy. Whereas like with LeBron and MJ, it's entirely based on like, you know, hypotheticals. They're completely unique circumstances. And even, you know, like in even just in the last 30 years, how much the game has changed just in terms of the X's and O's and, and the way the flow of the game looks in the half court and in transition. So it's like, yep. it's, it's all based on these contextualizations. My thing is like, the case that a LeBron fan can make is if I'm picking five random dudes or four random dudes and I'm picking 10 random bench players and I'm picking a random coach, like I I can point to evidence that shows that LeBron would be more likely to win with those guys. It doesn't mean that there's bad evidence for MJ. It just means that there's less good evidence because of the fact that he won in one specific way. So like, I know that if I have, you know, but, but the reality is, is like if you're a GM of a team, and you know MJ can win in one way, you can go out and build a roster that you know will fit with what MJ does well. I'm just saying, like, like while MJ's case is this, like, dominance in his era that is kind of repetitive, LeBron's case is, like, this just ridiculous versatility spanning a very large uh, period of time, you know, sure. and, and those are the differing cases. And sure. at that point, it, and so much of this is subjective. Like, I just, you know... Some people watch LeBron and don't see the impact. You know, they watch him and they go like, what is up with these funky isolations at the top of the key where he's doing these weird dribbles and shooting a pull-up? Or, oh, man, like every time he goes to the basket, he's just bowling dudes over. And, you know, oh, like I hate it when he passes on the last shot. And then you have other people that watch and they're like, they're like, oh, he's strangling the pace of this game. And, oh, well, that was an ugly basket, but that's an ugly basket that – you can depend on in the half court of a playoff series. And, you know, yes, he did kick out to uh, Kyle Korver for a miss or to Danny Green for a miss, but he also beat the Celtics with, by passing out to Chris Bosh for a huge three in game seven. And like, you know, like the, there are huge plays that are the opposite version of that as well. And so like people either look at LeBron and MJ and they like what they see or they don't. And I think one of the reasons why I brought you on is like, I think you're one of the people like me even though you would side with MJ, I think you're one of the people like me who genuinely sees the positive, positive impact of both. Because like, I love MJ. My very first piece of basketball memorabilia was an MJ Sports Illustrated poster. Like MJ, I have the exact same body as MJ. I'm nowhere near as athletic, but like I, I structured a lot of what I do around him. MJ is, if, as, a, as a basketball fan, he's one of my favorite players ever. I just grew up as a LeBron fan. That's literally the only difference. You know what I mean? And so I think like it's impossible to have this debate with somebody who will look at LeBron and be like, yeah, he's the seventh best player in the league. You know, like my buddy Jeremiah, like it's like, I can't have that conversation with you because like you're coming at it with too much bias. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and I definitely wasn't willing to have any type of goat conversation with LeBron before this year. I'm more willing to have it now. I still wouldn't like, I still lean MJ because I'm an MJ guy, and I probably will unless LeBron does some pretty incredible things over the next couple of years. Um, but I think to kind of put a bow on it, like I said, he's one of the four guys who, who has that accomplishment of best player on four championship teams. You know, mm-hmm. that is that is an incredible accomplishment, no matter how you slice it. 
right? And, you know, he got lucky with injuries this year, but there's other years where he's gotten unlucky with injuries. Mm-hmm. Unlucky with other things. So Yeah, he definitely benefited from some things breaking his way this season, but I totally. don't think you can hold that against him because he definitely had some stuff not break his way in the past. Exactly, exactly. So it's tough to hold it against him in either fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I... I don't really like this is going to sound like a cop out, but I don't I haven't done a top 10 list of all time in so long. I don't know exactly where I put him. I think I had him before this year, somewhere around six or seven, eight, something like that. I'd say he's definitely top five now. Um, It's a short list. It's him. It's MJ for me. Uh, It's probably Phil Russell. I have Duncan in there because I love Duncan. Um, And then I don't even know. I guess I'd probably throw magic in there. Um, But I mean, that's you don't have Kobe in there. I could hear the argument for Kobe. Um, I, I would probably be Magic for Kobe um, hmm. at five. And I, I, like I said, I don't really do the top ten list thing, but I, I think it's basically those five or six guys all time where you could rely on them for a longer period of time from winning than basically anybody else in NBA history, right? He, Kobe came in, he won championships early, he won championships ten years later. Magic, I mean, if Magic doesn't have to retire because of AIDS, he might have competed for championships for three or four more years. He wanted to Yeah, there are a lot of things season. that could have changed the yeah. 90s. Because MJ, MJ, the breaks that MJ had in the 90s essentially centered around expansion and yep. the and, Bird and uh, Magic's careers Bird and ending, Magic's careers ending shortly. Because the way that LeBron is but, to a Kawhi now is the way that Magic should have been to MJ. Sure, but sense. my rebuttal would be, so LeBron is going to have a longevity part on the back end here that I don't think was afforded to guys like Mike or Magic or Bird because the technology wasn't as good. The sports science wasn't as good. The care for your body wasn't, wasn't as good. LeBron can, you know, get his body to be basically a well-oiled machine and can play into his 40s. Even if those guys have I, the only The that, only thing I'd push back on you there is look at how many players from LeBron's draft are still in the league. That's the only sure. way I'd push back on you. Like sure. the there, while LeBron, I agree 100% in principle that the league has better there are more tools. technology now, for sure. But yep. the reality is, is LeBron's longevity is impressive even just within the lens of this era. Sure. So I, yeah, I would disagree with that. Um, but I think there's also something to LeBron coming into the league when he was 18, and most of the guys in that draft did it. Right. For sure. And that's why I said I can't I can't factor in counting stats or 17 years for LeBron totally. yet. Like LeBron's longevity argument has to be built from this point forward. It has to be opinion. built from age. It's not it's not built from years in the league, in my opinion. Built from 100% age. agree. Because it's not like so it's not like Michael Jordan wasn't playing basketball games. He wasn't playing as many at the same age. You know, he's playing 30 something versus 80 something, but they were also probably running three hour practices in North Carolina because it was the 80s and nobody and his knew off any seasons were probably ridiculous. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I, yeah, I've never viewed that. Part yeah, so it's the longevity thing has never been based on years in the NBA to me. That's a dumb argument. It's age, age is what matters. That's the longevity argument. So, mm-hmm. yeah, like I said, I think he's, I, I would probably have him top five all time now just because there's been an extended period here of, um, obviously, basically 12, 13 years of championship contention, which is insane. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's where I would land on it. Um, people are going to get mad at me. They're going to call me clutch for that. But whatever, man. Like, I got to be honest with what I see on the floor. It's better to do it that way. Like, and it, I, I don't know. Like, I, I understand that taking crazy stances plays really well on TV and stuff like that. But to yeah. me, it's just so, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm just not interested in having that kind of debate. And, like, 
the, the, the debate is more interesting if it's closer. So like when people are being honest, it, it, the debate is genuinely more interesting as opposed to, yep. you know, like, oh, there's this massive chasm between the two. OK, well, now why are we even having to talk about it? You know, if yep. that's the case. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about it before we move on is just like his story's not over. He's probably going to go into this season as the favorite. He uh, um, the reality is, is like if his body holds up, he's going to have an opportunity, opportunity to add more to this case. And and I do think at that point, like with each passing season, there will be more to talk about here. But I do think that this point, the summer between his 17th and 18th season is the first time that you can actually sit down and make a case for him that makes some sense. And that's, sure. that's really the part that I found to be interesting. Sure. All right. On that note, I want to uh, move on to this NBA hierarchy thing. I've called it a horse race. I view it as like, you know, uh, a story beneath the story at the end of the day, it's a team sport. And, you know, uh, I think for most fans, casual fans that exist on you know, uh, on the periphery who are mon- or just rooting for their teams, this cannot be super, super interesting. But for people like me and for a lot of the basketball junkies out there, like I enjoy the idea of, uh, of kind of like gauging where these players are at any given moment in the NBA history. The reason why is I do think that I think that basketball more so than any other sport that I've been a part of that's a team sport is a very in-your-face, mono-e-mono type of sport. Like, and, like I go play pickup still to this day, and when I'm in the gym, I'm measuring, as I'm trying to win team games, I'm measuring myself as an individual against the other individuals in the gym. And I really do think that other NBA players do that. And I think that that isn't, you know, I think that we are foolish to pretend that doesn't exist when I guarantee you the players think about that. I guarantee you every single player in the NBA thinks a lot about where they stand in comparison to their peers as individuals. And so that's why I find that debate to be interesting. So uh, real quick, just to, to uh, before we get into what, uh, uh, what you have as your list, I had LeBron one. I put Steph Curry two, which I think you and I, um, uh, you and I have similar feelings probably in that regard. We'll find out. And then I put Kawhi three over AD because I was really disappointed in Anthony Davis's offensive uh, repertoire being kind of shut down by Miami in the finals. I thought that he still was deeply impactful. So it's not an indictment on his impact, but I thought that a lot of the things he was able to do in the earlier rounds were schemed out by Spolstra. Um, I had Kevin Durant as five, mainly because of his complete lack of dedication on the defensive end of the ball and his over-reliance on isolation scoring. I had uh, Giannis six for all of the reasons you could probably guess. I had Luka seven, James Harden, eight, Jokic, nine, and Dame Lillard, 10. So my main, uh, uh, I I guess my first question would be, what does your list look like? And then what are the things that you would push back on in my list? Okay. Do you want me to just run through my list? Yeah. Why don't you run through yours first? And then as you get to one that's not the same as mine, kind of explain why. Sure. So my top two are the same exact as yours. Um, And I, you know, Braun clearly deserves the crowd at this point. You know, he, his team won the championship, even though Steph was injured. doesn't matter. The guy who was the best player on the best team in the league, most years deserves that crowd. It's rare when that guy doesn't deserve the crowd. It's usually yeah. like a 2014 Spurs situation, 04 Pistons. It's the outlier. Typically, if you're the best player on the best team, you're the best player in the league. 
So I, my top two are the same exact as yours for basically all the reasons you laid out. They're, I think they are offensive engines on an all-time level, whereas I don't think anybody else on this list is. Well, they may be better at specific offensive skills, right? Like you could point to maybe Katie and Kawhi being better ISO players or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they are the same type of offensive engine as either one of those guys. Um, I, I think LeBron and Seth bring such a unique – um, offensive creation, and we've talked about this before. They do it in almost total opposite ways. Um, but they yeah, super up, different but similar impacts. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. similar impact, and they free up their teammates for open looks consistently every single night. And it's it's probably the most dependable thing in basketball that those guys' teams are going to get open looks on a pretty consistent basis against against any defense. Is against the key word any there. defense, mm-hmm. right? Exactly against any defense of any level. Um, so my top two are the exact same. I had Kevin Durant at three because the way I look at it, there are three guys. And we're basing this on Kevin Durant's health for the record. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying Kevin Durant is fully healthy. Yeah. This is Kevin Durant being fully healthy or, well, you know, as close to Which I think he will be. I I do too. His game the past couple years has not been super athletic defended. He has been working more out of the mid-range than ever. Um, he, he doesn't take a ton of threes, but he's been taking, you know, a good volume of them, like five a game, I want to say. Um, so my, my counter to you would be, and I, I heard the defensive part. I don't think Kawhi plays defense anymore either. And that's why I have him over Kawhi. Um, and okay. I think he is a, well, AD has improved as a scorer. I think he is a far superior scorer to AD still. I think Durant is one of the five greatest scorers of all time while AD really has no... There's, there's a chasm between AD and KD and D on offense. I agree Ex- with you there. Exactly. But there's exactly. also a chasm on the defensive end for whatever that's there, worth. There is. There is. But I think offensive impact is more important than defensive impact. If we're agree. talking top 10 list because hmm. if you look at the end of the year, every year, the guys that are left standing are the best offensive players typically. And yeah. sometimes it's the best defensive guy, but it's typically just the best offensive players. Um, so in my case for KD would be over Kawhi, his team is not in any single playoffs in his career has gone out like Kawhi's team and not just not from the three, one standpoint, we talked about that Clippers loss and how it's maybe the most embarrassing loss in NBA history. Um, if I, I, I did this, I think the other day I ran down, uh, Oklahoma city's losses in the playoffs, um, since, or well, basically all Kevin Durant's playoff exits. Yeah, I would say the closest thing would be 2013 or two, yeah, 2013 against Memphis, right? Am I so I, I'm, I'm going to touch on that one too. So his first okay. playoffs ever, 2010, they lose to the Lakers in the first round. Lakers go on to win the title. 2011, they lose in the conference finals to the Mavericks. The Mavericks go on to win the title. 2012, we know what happened there. They, the finals, they lose to Miami. Durant is, I want to say, 23 or 24 years old at that time. Uh, super young, leading a super, super young team to the finals and actually played really well. Um, Russ was hit or miss, and Harden was absolutely awful in that series. 2013, they lose to Memphis. No Russ. The starters in that series, Kevin Durant, Reggie Jackson, Serge Ibaka, Tabo Cephalosha, and Kendrick Wilkins. Derek Fisher was Derek Fisher played 134 minutes in that series in five games, so he's averaging around 30 minutes a game. Uh, Kevin Martin was playing like 30 minutes a game. Reggie Jackson played like 35 minutes a game. That was a god-awful basketball team. And KD mm-hmm. did not play well. Well, I shouldn't even say that. He, he scored 28 a game, shot 42% from the field. So it's not like he played awful. 
but that was a bad Oklahoma City team. They're starting Kendrick Perkins and Thomas Pelosi, who were okay players back then, but but nothing special. 2014, they lose to a vengeful Spurs team who goes on and wins the title. 2015. And that series was close. A lot yep. closer than the Miami Super, series was. It, it was 2-0, and then they got a Baca back and went to 2-2, and the Spurs somehow gutted it out just because I think they were so motivated to get back to the finals. Um, there was more work at play there than just, you know, a one-on-one series between the Spurs and the Thunder. They were on a revenge tour, the Spurs were. Next year, KD gets injured. They don't even make the playoffs without him. Uh, 2016, we all know what happened. They both 3-1 lead to a 73-9 and team. Uh, 17 and 18, he wins the title. 19, he gets injured. His team doesn't win the title, partially because he's not on the floor. This year, he's mm-hmm. So my point would be, I don't think at any time, maybe the 2017 season when Kawhi was really, really good. I think that's the only season you can really make an argument for Kawhi over KD. But even that year, KD ends up winning finals MVP. Um, so point being, I don't think at any point in his career has Kawhi been a better player than Kevin Durant. And my biggest thing is I'm not sure – if you can build a championship level team around anybody besides those three guys, I think you can around Kawhi at this point, uh, but it's for hit or miss because of the injury stuff. And if his mid range game isn't going really has nothing else to rely on, but I know for a fact I can build a championship contention level roster given average parts. I know I can do it a lot around LeBron. I know I can do it around Steph and I know I can do it around Kevin Durant. I don't know if I can do it around anybody else. I really don't. I mean, if you have a rebuttal to that, point to it but i i don't know if there is one well yeah so i mostly agree with you the 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 in the in terms of your points i think it's important to disclose that i think after i think that there's given lebron's defensive impact there's a little bit of a gap between lebron and steph sure and then i and then i think there's a little bit of a gap between steph in the next three guys, I think AD, KD, and Kawhi are all very close, in my opinion. That's just my take on it. Now, so if you had KD above Anthony Davis and Kawhi, I don't think that that's uh, much of a difference, in my opinion, between what I said. Um, that said, my, my biggest beef with KD his entire career has been like that. And you and I have talked about this at length, but he he has the physical gifts of Anthony Davis, but has has the like similar defensive impact to like Steph Curry. Cause sure. you know, and I know that sounds absolutely insane, but the, the biggest reason why is because Kevin Durant is, he gambles a lot. He is constantly standing straight up. He gets out of position all the time. So even though he has these amazing athletic gifts and physical gifts, he makes Steph a lot of Curry, flash plays defensively. He makes Steph, a lot of, it makes a lot of flash plays, but the, Possession to possession. Isn't yeah, great. the and, possession to possession effort besides 2017, really, and first half of 2018, I'd say it wasn't there. there it isn't. Yeah, and, and like, and was, whereas like Steph Curry, who's six foot three and relatively slow, what he does amazingly well is he's always in the right place and he's always committed to the team defensive goal. And he does a great job of playing defense with his feet and with his chest as opposed to playing defense with his hands. And like, and when he does reach, it's always very timely and, and it's always yeah. very like uh, pointed and focused as opposed to just, you know, like it, like Ke- Kevin Durant's defensive focus and effort in his career has been kind of laughably bad for a guy who's as good as he is. And I think, I think he goes, it goes to show you that how much we value offense that we even see him as high as we do. 
But I think my case for putting Kawhi and Anthony Davis ever so slightly above Kevin Durant is the fact that even though Kawhi, I agree, since San Antonio has taken his foot off the gas a little bit on that side of the ball, I still think him and Anthony Davis's overall defensive impact is so much greater than that of Kevin Durant's that 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 to me would be a differentiator. Um, and, to, and for the record, that's my biggest worry about that Brooklyn Nets team is yeah. just you're looking at the elite duo, duos in the league. I'm looking at, you know, uh, LeBron and AD who are just they're attacking both ends of the ball. And I'm looking at, you know, Tatum and Brown and I'm looking at, you know, uh, a Kawhi and Paul George. And I'm looking at all the even Steph and Clay. It's like Steph and Clay aren't the same physical talents, but Clay is an elite defensive player and Steph tries to be. And so from those standpoints, it's hard for me to get optimistic about a Brooklyn team whose two stars are basically going to look at the rest of the roster and be like, you guys do it, yeah. you know? And, and I think that, that that could end up being something that could hurt them. But essentially, like, the uh, last thing I'll say on KD, and then we can move on your list, like, uh, I, the, I think the top of the league right now is deeper than it's been at any point since the late 1980s, basically when all the 80s stars were at the end of their prime and when the you know MJ's of the world were at the at the start of their prime, I think that's and, uh, and right now, when you're looking at that list, a list that has guys like James Harden for me at eight and Giannis at six, like a, a ridiculously tough list. I think you've got to differentiate yourself in some way. And you know, for LeBron and Steph, it's that elite offensive playmaking. You know, and for LeBron, it's his defense and. You know, for Anthony Davis, it's, you know, his defense and what I thought was one of the most dominant defensive playoff runs in league history. And Giannis just won a defensive player of the year. And, you know, and, and when you get down to like Luka and, and Jokic, it's this unbelievable passing and playmaking ability that arguably is in the top two or three in the league in that regard. And like the, you have these differentiating skills and Kevin Durant's is scoring. But I think he I think he does leave a lot to be desired desired in the other ends of his game. And last but not least, like I really do think that Kevin Durant from a basketball IQ standpoint is a little over reliant on isolation scoring. And like you said, and uh, he has been there at the end with every in every season, either losing to the eventual champion or being the champion. I think there's a lot of help permitting. That's been the case every single year. I, and I agree with that, but I could also make an argument that part of the reason why he's come up short is the fact that he over relies on that side of his game. And like, and I think the greatest example of it would be, you know, well, two, two real quick ones, 2016 going, you know, like shooting horrifically bad in the last few games of the series and taking like 30 shots a game. And then two, uh, uh, in 2019, him, him going on like, the most magnificent, like efficient scoring run we've ever seen against the Clippers and in the first four games against Houston or anybody watching the TV is like, dear God, this guy is unbelievable. He's making everything, yep. but the team's not winning. And yep. the team, because well, they were 2-2 against Houston and they even let uh, the Clippers take two off of them. Clippers, them and two, and then yeah. as soon as they, as soon as Kevin Durant goes down, you know, the, the Warriors start playing their free flowing style with Steph again and then they take off. Now, my, there's some context there. You know, Portland sure. wasn't super good, Portland wasn't but, great. Like, but but they did take two quick ones off of Houston. And, and I guess my point is, is like they I won seven of eight case. when when Steph and Clay, they won seven of eight when Steph and Clay were healthy. They won six in a row and then they dropped game one in Toronto. They won game two in Toronto. And then Clay was basically in and out of the series for the rest of it. Yeah, you so. sat out game three. Yeah, you're right. And like and yep. that th- that's all I'm saying is like, I think like. I think my beef with Kevin Durant would be, you know, and I I said this the other day on the podcast, but like 
he, he was, you know, someone, he did an interview with that guy from the elite group, Cam, who's running the elite yep. group. And yep. he said, he goes, uh, you know, like, what are you, what are you working on this summer? And, and Kevin Durant's just like, ISO, just doing one-on-ones. And it's like, you can tell his view of the game is like, I am going to be the greatest one-on-one player of all time. And while I do think that's a huge asset to winning and why I 100% agree with you that he can be the best player on the championship team, I'm just saying that I think there are a few guys that take over him because of his over-reliance on that ability. And that's that's entirely fair. But I think he is so good as an ISO scorer, it doesn't matter. And mm-hmm. I think when he wants to be, he's a better distributor than both of those guys. Mm-hmm. He's a be- he's just a better he's a better natural passer. Um, so I, I would just rely on a team built around his offense, given you know a baseline of defensive effort. I would re- I would trust a team with his him running the offense more than either one of those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, like it took a lot for Kawhi's Raptors. It took a lot of extra playmakers for them to win that title because Kawhi wasn't going to do any of that. And AD, AD is phenomenal. He's a phenomenal player. Um, I have nothing bad to say about the guy. Um, but I don't know if he could ever be the true number one option on a championship team. He's an incredible I think you'll get scorer. to that point. I don't think he's there yet. That's my opinion. It depends how he can start playing out of double teams and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and that's going to be a huge part of his development. And we'll see how LeBron factors into that because I think he will. Um, but point being, I mean, those guys are – I would have Katie closer to the Seth LeBron tier, I think, than you would. Uh, but I do hear your argument, and I, and I do see why you put him kind of in that mm. next tier. Um, mm. So I had uh, Katie three. I had Kawhi four, which I think you had Kawhi three, right? Yes. And then I actually had Giannis five eighty six. Um, and here's you my still reason. have Giannis over AD. Let's yeah. see. Let's hear the reason for so that. So here, here's my reasoning. Number one, the playoff stuff in New Orleans. I mean, the, the guy made the playoffs what two times in seven years. I believe mm-hmm. is what is what happened. Um, and I do see the argument for AD in terms of being a better scorer, I guess, in, in ISO situations. Um, and he's an incredible defender. So you can't, I think when you're choosing between Giannis and AD, you're kind of splitting hairs defensively, even though I would like to see Giannis fully unleashed on that end, which he really isn't in bud system. He's playing drop coverage half the time, which is, mm-hmm. I mean, I know it's effective in certain situations, but I'd love to see him play the five more and get the switch and just be like super duper disruptive. Cause we've seen like, even in like the all-star game, when he got super into the all-star game, it was like bananas, how disruptive he was like switching out guys in the perimeter and just causing chaos. So I think he could do more of that in a better construct or a better scheme. Um, but my biggest reason is I trust Giannis more on a night to night basis to bring the, the physical and mental side of his game than I do Anthony Davis at this point. And I think AD has improved greatly in that, in that area. But even this, the couple of stinkers he had against like Miami, or you, you would have like one or two stinkers a series. And not that Yana doesn't do that um, in the playoffs, but he's also carrying a much larger, um, I guess, load in terms of offensive and defensive responsibility. Um, I know one of the things you pointed to when you were arguing AD over Giannis was the fact that AD was able to get his points in different ways when, you know, his ISO game wasn't going. My pushback on that would be he's playing with LeBron James. You know, he's getting points in the dunker spot. He's getting points in, like, you know, these easy ways by being a cutter. The, Milwaukee is a horrendous passing team. Well, I think Chris Middleton is a very good player and is become almost somewhat underrated by some people and overrated by others. Like he's not a top 10 player, but he's also probably not outside the top 30 or top 25. He's really good. 
Mm-hmm. But he's not a guy that's going to be setting up Giannis on a consistent basis. And that's what Giannis needs at this point. Because if you can get him a guy like that, he's going to be insanely impactful. Um, You're right. They're the best playmaker on the team might be, what, George Hill? Like, Eric, <laughs> Eric Bledsoe. I mean, yeah. that, that, there are so many times where I'm watching Bucks games and Giannis like, has a guy sealed on his back or he's like open cutting down the lane and they just flat out miss him. You know, that's like, okay, that's an easy two points. That's an easy two points. That was that he probably would have gotten fouled on that cut. You know, it's, and it starts to add up where he's, I don't like the way that he's almost been taught to play at this point by Bud and that Buck stat. Um, so I, I, I'm relieving a lot of the blame from Giannis here. And I realize that. Um, but I think my, my bigger point sorts around that he's led 60 win teams basically in back-to-back seasons. And even though there are the playoff failures, they were two games away from making the NBA finals last year. Um, if, if a couple of things go differently, they're up 3-0 in that series, and they're probably playing in the finals. Um, and like I said, I just trust him more on a night-to-night basis. I just do, and just from an effort standpoint. I agree with you on the mental and effort stuff. I think that uh, Giannis's motor is as good you'll find in the league. He actually mm-hmm. reminds me of young LeBron in that regard, yep. just that like every night it's like it could be like in Portland on a random Tuesday, and he's just bringing that intensity. Uh, I guess my question or my, my like angle on it was I'm evaluating them both as players who are not best player on championship team level players, because mm-hmm. I think we've gone past that on our list now. I think after, I think the top I four, I think Kawhi, KD, uh, uh, LeBron and, and Steph, or for me, you know, Anthony Davis, I put uh, Kevin Durant down as well, but, but and mo- most of that Kevin, most of that Anthony Davis over Kevin Durant thing for the record has to do with like, rewarding this playoff run you know like understanding that like in the proverbial horse race you know anthony davis should be able to go into next year with a certain amount of clout uh, as a result of doing what he did and uh um and i you know chances are i'll watch kevin durant at brooklyn jersey next year and immediately remember that i'm crazy for making that decision <laughs> but yeah but regardless as far as as far as ad and Giannis go you know i'm looking at them both as players who can't be the best player in a championship team. So I'm, I'm evaluating them in a different land. Do you think from the and from go ahead. Do you think Giannis would be meaningfully worse or will the, I, okay. So would the Lakers be meaningfully worse with Giannis there instead of AD? So I think it completely changes their team because totally. of the way Anthony Davis space is there. I, so I think, I think you mentioned this earlier, but I, I said this in my, in my top 10 podcast, I think, I think uh, uh, AD and Giannis are the two best defensive players in the league, and there's a huge gap after them. Totally. Like I think, I think like the Gobert's and the Kawhis of the world are not even in the same like stratosphere as Anthony Davis and Giannis, because Anthony Davis and Giannis are the only two perimeter defender lock, lockdown perimeter defenders who also happen to be seven feet in the league. Like guys like Embiid and 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 uh, and. Uh, um, Gobert are are examples of really tall players who can lock down the paint, but you can scheme them out of the paint as opposed to, you know, like, like whereas Anthony Davis and Giannis can, you could literally put them on, on DJ Augustine and they'd Doesn't be able matter. to, to, yep. to, to shut them down, you know? And from that standpoint, I think that uniquely qualifies them for defensive impact that all of the other 448 players in the league cannot qualify for. But uh, aside from that, I, now I'm looking at them as second best offensive players on teams. So uh, Giannis is miscast now. I agree with you as a best offensive player on his team, but I do think that I do think that it's telling that you know when when your offensive isolation game gets shut down, you have to find other ways to score. 
So for most uh, players, you know, it involves closing down the lane. So with a LeBron, a Giannis, an Anthony Davis, a Kawhi, whatever it is, you shut down the lane, you turn them into jump shooters, right? Yep. So, so there's this huge gap between Anthony Davis and Giannis in terms of their jump shooting, which is part of the reason why in the, in the finals, even though Eric Spolstra completely closed down the lane, Anthony Davis was still able to get to his 26 point points per game on ridiculous efficiency, as opposed to Giannis falling down to, I think, like 22. And then the previous year against Toronto, like 23. I think that both of them can be beasts on the offensive glass. And I think you saw that. I think even in that Miami series, a lot of Giannis's baskets came on the offensive glass. Both of them can operate out of the dunker spot with a playmaker. Now, to your point, Giannis doesn't really have that luxury, which can really affect him in that regard. But Anthony Davis can uh, uh, shoot the ball from the perimeter extremely well. Uh, I guess the only, I guess if I'm being fair though, I would you could say the same thing about Giannis's playmaking ability. While I don't think Giannis is a great playmaker, I think he's pretty average. I think Anthony Davis is pretty far below average, and yeah. so I, I think that there's a gap that can be uh, talked about there. But I I think part of it is rewarding Anthony Davis for what was a championship run. And then the other part of it is just the way that Anthony Davis, I was impressed that when the defense completely took him out of his, uh, of his post-up game and basically turned him into a contested jump shooter, a spot-up three-point shooter, and a guy who operated out of the dunker spot, that he still had a pretty damn big impact on the game from that standpoint. Um, but I agree, I agree with you that like it kind of is similar to the LeBron MJ thing where we're kind of contextualizing in entirely different circumstances. Like Giannis is now a number one, Anthony Davis is a number two. Yeah. Yeah, AD, is, AD is playing with a player that accentuates and, and uh, accentuates his, his strengths and kind of masks his flaws, whereas Giannis is by himself. So when a team like Miami exposes his flaws, it's like glaring, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I see where you're coming from on there, and I, I'll allow it. So let's, uh, let's move on to the next one on your list. So Giannis 5, 86. Uh, I had Jokic at 7. Is that where you had him? Or where did you have Jokic? I had Jokic at 9. Okay. Yeah, I, I have him at seven. Um, I think he's a championship level offensive engine if you put the right pieces around him. But the, the concern why I haven't further down the list and some of those other guys is because the defense is as a center, it's really hard to build around a guy who can't protect the rim at a fairly elite level. Right? If you're if you're, mm-hmm. you can you can hide guards defensively. You can even hide wings to a certain extent, not as much, but you can't really hide centers. Um, so I agree. If, if he was better defensively, if he somehow figures out that end, they're going to be scary. Mm-hmm. That Denver team is going to be really scary because I think they're starting to build something there. Um, and he is a tremendous, tremendous offensive talent. I mean, I, I obviously wasn't old enough to watch anybody like Bill Walton play, uh, but or Arvita Sabonis, really. But those are kind of the two names that are thrown around as the greatest passing big men ever. Um, I would be shocked if Jokic wasn't right there with those guys. I mean, he is a tremendous passer. He can score in isolation, not as good as some of the other guys. And I think you pointed this to not as good as some of the best guys, but he can absolutely do it. Um, His numbers get better in the playoffs. His shooting percentages, his scoring. um, I'm not sure if his assists go up or down, uh, but he usually outperforms his regular season, at least through the first two playoff appearances of his career. He outperforms his regular season in the playoffs, which is huge. By, by a big margin. By a big margin. So, I mean, I could really even hear an argument for putting him as high as, like, five. Uh, but I would, I really, just because of the chasm between 
the defensive end between him and AD and Giannis, I would have a really tough time doing that because they're both so impactful as defenders. They're they're defensive player of the year type of defenders. While Jokic is <laughs> middle tier at best. Um, so I, I mean, obviously, a tremendous player, um, a guy that I love watching play. Uh, but yeah, I, I think seven's about right for him. Who'd you have at seven? So I, I put uh, Luca at seven Luka. and Harden at eight. And the the, okay. re- the the big reason why I put Jokic be- uh, below those guys centers around what you said before, like the, the difficulty around scheming for a bad defensive center. Mm-hmm. And then two, just like not quite as dominant as a, as a score. And I think a lot of people would say, a lot of people would say, oh, well, why did Jokic beat uh, uh, the Clippers and Luka didn't? Mm-hmm. And I think what I would tell you is that I really do think that the Chris Stapps injury hurt that Dallas team. And I think there's a really good case that that could have been a first round loss if, if uh, Chris Stapps was healthy. And the, the reality is, is what I view Luka as is basically a perimeter Jokic who's a better scorer and who's easier to scheme around defensively. So that was the big reason why I had him up there. That's and then fair. the big and, and then Harden similar thing. Harden just uh um uh Harden's uh this postseason actually as much as I could slander him for other things, he still managed to score the ball pretty efficiently. And then uh, James Harden has definitively turned himself into kind of like a Steph level defensive player. A guy who knows where to stand, who cannot be victimized in switches who really his main defensive uh, uh, shortcomings come in the form of little quick lapses, like a random time that he doesn't get back in transition or a random time where he gets caught falling asleep. But for he the struggles most against part, quickness too. He struggles against yeah. guards. And he's strong. And he's yeah, he, he so is strong. That's the thing. He can't do that. He's turned himself into an average defensive player. But like this is another tier thing where I think like for me I have – uh, these three guys, uh, Harden, Jokic, and Luka, all kind of in the same tier. So I think you're splitting hairs, kind of uh, uh, differentiating between those guys. And I'm kind of going against my own ideology here because theoretically we should reward Jokic for what was this dominant playoff run. That said, like uh, I, the reason why I put Luka and James Harden above him center around that position that I've always viewed more valuable. You and I have argued about this in the past. I just, I'm always going to lean perimeter initiator in a situation like this. And then secondly, just that like the reality is, is like Jokic is, you mentioned this earlier. He is a, a very good scorer who on any given night can be a dominant scoring player. If you leave him in isolation and you don't send help, but that, but it's so clear that guys like Harden and Luca are advanced beyond his skill level in that regard. Sure. Uh, but I do agree with you. And I view, I view particularly Luka and Jokic as guys who could one day be guys who have that Steph LeBron type impact where it's like this supreme offensive engine. Me too. Me too. Um, and and my, my pushback would be on the perimeter initiator thing. I think in some ways Jokic almost is a perimeter initiator. He does have Jamal Murray on his team. But, I mean, Murray was obviously tremendous in the playoffs. I don't want to take anything away from him. But a lot of the time, his, his decision-making leaves a lot to be desired. Um, oh, for sure. He, he's a great scorer. Uh, I, think we, I think we've seen he can get super-duper hot for extended periods of time. But Jokic is the primary creator for that team. And, and a lot of times, he's grabbing the ball and going off, off the defensive glass. He's bringing it up if teams are pressuring their point guards. So, I he doesn't – that's the weird thing about Jokic. He doesn't fit cleanly into any – you know, one archetype. He's so unique. Um, and I think guys like that with his skill level are so hard to game plan for because you really haven't seen it. Like you know, 
that combination of scoring and, and playmaking from a guy that big. Um, and and because of the shifts that have occurred around the league, like uh, I think that's a big part of it too, is just Jokic is kind of a market inefficiency in the same way that sure. Steph was in 2015. Like he's Precisely. he's so ahead of his, ahead of his position that like right now people don't know how to guard it. I mean, like in 2015, like guards didn't even know to pick up Steph Curry after half court for like the, the first season and a half. Like teams, it, were, it's, teams were still playing drop coverage against the pick and roll. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, and like, and I think Jokic is kind of taking advantage of that right now. Whereas like, uh, and I think that's what ended up hurting them against the Lakers was sure. the, the fact that. Uh, the Lakers had someone that could physically yeah, match up with. Him. It's a bad like, matchup for him. Oh yeah, and but like the the bottom line is like I I think that uh, uh, I agree with you, and I I like all the things about Jokic that you like. I'm just when I'm splitting hairs between him and Harden and Luca, that's what I. Those were the reasons why I put him above. So what do you got after uh, Jokic at seven? I got Luca at eight, and I have Jimmy Butler at nine. So you have Harden at ten. I'm I got assuming. I got Dame at ten. So you have Harden outside of the top ten. <laughs> How about yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I and this isn't even an anti like Houston thing. This isn't like me being a Warriors fan and hating on the Houston Rockets. I just I'm to the point with Harden where it's like it's the same thing every year. And if I'm starting a team right now, and you say, do you want Damian Lillard or James Harden? I'm taking Damian Lillard. I'm sorry. If I'm starting a franchise, and you're Gosh, asking, I might be, I might be on your side. That's of this. what this is. What I'm saying, you're swaying me. You're swaying because me and, and and it's while Harden might be a better isolation scorer, and he might have better look. So I'll preface everything that I'm saying about Harden with this: he is one of the most tremendously talented offensive players I have ever seen in my life. He's an absurdly talented offensive player, but he doesn't use his skill set in the correct way. He has become so reliant on isolation basketball, like way more than even Kevin Durant, to the, to the point where it's so predictable. And we talked about this when we analyzed the Houston-LA series. LA was just sending a double at him. They knew he was going to pass it out of the double and stand. So as soon as he picked up the ball, they were already rotating out of the double team almost. They were already they were pre-rotating because they knew exactly what was coming. It makes his team, while he still got his numbers efficiently this year, it makes his team so easy to guard. So easy to guard. And a lot of that, I think, was the way they tried to build around him. But I think a lot of his his statistical dominance has been because of the way they built around him, particularly in the regular season. They built around trying to have a guy who could be the most statistically dominant player in basketball. And my second point would be why I would take Dame over him. If we're going to talk leadership and wanting to center your franchise around one person, this isn't even a conversation. That Dame's better leader. Oh, my God. It, it's not, I, I mean, we don't even have to have the conversation. James Harden runs teammates out. Damian Lillard has been playing with a guy who really is not played, made to play with him in C.J. McCollum. McCollum, I think, could be really successful in some other um, team constructs. You know, I think he could be, like, really good in Philly because they need a guy like that. But mm-hmm. Dame could have whined three, four years ago, hey, you need to get somebody in here who can actually defend next to me, who brings a different type of skill set. He hasn't done that. All he does is try to lead his team to, to, to win no matter what's happening. So I think you're going to get a bunch of crap for this, but oh, I, I totally I, you, you don't you don't sound that crazy to be honest with you. I, I exactly, and, and I know it's an absurd take. And like I said, I preface this with saying Harden is one of the most talented offensive players I've ever well, seen. Well, I think I think your point 
it, it's going to feel like hard and slander, but I think half of it is just acknowledging that the NBA is so ridiculously deep right now. Absolutely. That's a huge part of it too. Um, so yeah, look, man, I, I, a couple of years ago, you could have convinced me the guy was a top three player in the league, but just seeing the way it is now, I, it's the same thing every year. He, it never mm-hmm. changes. And, and there's never any progress. If anything, it just gets worse. The one year that he had actual playoff success, he had a top five point guard of all time at his side. You know, the guy amassed a lot of his flaws. Exactly. That was able to control pace for him. That was able to get his teammates efficient looks when, when he couldn't because his style of play stagnated. Um, yeah. I mean, it's stuff that we've talked about with Harden before. So yeah. I, I said this in my top 10 list. The, I think that he's one of the few guys on this list that there's a proven way to beat him. Sure. And I think that, that I think that, that that's exactly. why I thought I had him low at, at eight. So the, so I think from that standpoint, like um, I think we're coming from the same, at this, from the same page here. And, you know, it's funny cause I, I, as I was looking at tears, I was comparing Harden to Jokic and Luca and you're right. Like Dick, I think Luca's already better at what he does. I think Luca's Dick, already Dick better at what Harden does. You're right? right. No, I hundred percent. And and I made that case based on his his versatility. And I thought I think Luca, I think Luca is a playmaker, and I think James Harden's a guy who can pass. And I think there's a huge difference. Yep. And uh, and but you're right. Like I, now that I'm looking at it from the angle of Dame versus Harden, like that's like I have to think about that one. And, and Dame. And, and to be clear, Dame has a case. To be clear, Dame has not been a great playoff performer. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna lay that out there as well. But he just had an all-time statistical regular season. Um, not mm-hmm. that Harden hasn't, uh, but I, once again, I think a lot of the stuff that happens to Dame in the playoffs is due to team construct. I, I just think they they have not done a great job I building agree. rosters well, around was, him in Portland. This, this so. is a great this is a great segue because I had Dame over Jimmy Butler yep. because I said that if Dame was in Miami, that he would look. You know, like he'd be doing this. He'd be making finals runs and stuff. So yep. my question – so this will actually be a perfect one for us to end on, and I think it's good because I've taken a lot of flack for this one, and you're kind of a good opposite uh, uh, perspective. Why do you have Jimmy so high? I wanted to have him as high as seven, but I couldn't – I couldn't be honest with myself and do that. So I – refresh my mind here. I know there were three things that you uh, laid out as what you value for um, – being a top 10 player it was uh defensive versatility yep. um isolation scoring yep. and then uh playmaking i think were the three yeah it was like elite high-end playmaking elite high-end isolation scoring and elite high-end defensive versatility okay so i would say jimmy is very good to elite in all three of those categories he's incredibly defensively versatile he can basically guard anybody one through four he the way he reads rotations defensively is almost Draymond Green-like off the ball. He, he arrives at spots before the offensive player even knows they're going to be there. And that's like a super, super rare trait that you don't see from – you see it from like five, six guys in the league maybe, if that. So he's super defensively versatile. People say, oh, his isolation scoring is this or that. Number one, how many guys in the league are actually better at, than him as an isolation scorer? I know it doesn't look pretty. Doesn't look pretty with like, and I'm not making a dead comparison between the two. It doesn't look pretty with LeBron a lot of the time, right? It doesn't necessarily have to look pretty. So, well, what's your well, what's your uh, rationalization for the fact that, like, statistically speaking, he's not even in like the top two, three, four tiers of scores? 
because he's like a points per game. He's yeah, he's a twenty, he's a twenty point a game guy. He's like Chris Middleton in terms of statistical production. Well, I, he has a super high free throw rate. He gets to the free throw free throw line at a higher rate than almost anybody in the league. And I agree. when when the and I know you said well the Lakers gave bad defensive effort when they left him in isolation. He had a forty point triple double without two of his best teammates on the floor, and then he had a thirty five point game five where. I think LeBron was probably better in that game, but Jimmy was damn good. How many guys can say they've gone toe-to-toe with LeBron in NBA Finals, same positionally for two games, and had the worst team and gotten wins? Well, I think I think this is where people uh, like We're overvaluing I the finals. I I, well, no, I understand. What I think you're people, no, I think this is where people went crosswise with me, and and I and I got confused, you know, as to where the pushback was coming from because like. Like, I think there's two different conversations to have. Like, there's a conversation around how amazing Jimmy was in the finals. Yep. And then there's a conversation about how good is he at basketball compared to some of his peers. Because, like, for instance, you know, Rondo was unfreaking believable and, you know, in four or five of the of the playoff games, including yep. game six of the finals. But, like, he was also, like, terrible in a bunch of the other games. And I don't think anybody in the world would say he's a top 15 point guard, you know, but he was – the best, the arguably the best point guard in the floor in the finals. So like sure. my thing is like w- when I'm, when I'm uh, talking about this, I think people confuse me, you know, dissecting Jimmy's game with slandering his performance. His performance in the finals was unbelievable. He was, he was the reason why that series went six games. There's absolutely no other opinion you can hold. And I'm not slandering that. I'm just saying, you know, and, and for instance, one of the reasons why I spoke so much about the Laker defensive effort is the Lakers defense has never been a great isolation defense team. They uh, uh, consistently have had, have put weak individual defenders on the floor. Danny Green was a weak individual defender this year. Contavious Caldwell Pope was a weak individual defender this year. There are centers while they did okay. Like Dwight had some success against Jokic, but their, their centers were not good in switches this year. Their whole scheme was built on if you got you you would put LeBron or AD on the best player, but if for whatever reason a screen or some sort of action got them off of the body, you would send help and double. And that was the the problem that I had with it is like you're right, Jimmy absolutely torched Markeith Morris and he absolutely torched Contavious Caldwell Pope and he absolutely torched you know Caruso when he was too small and all these other things. But there, I I always just felt like you know we had all of this evidence for basically six years that Jimmy was a 20 point a game playoff guy and a 21 point a game regular season guy. And then two games in the finals happened. And while those finals performances should be lauded for what they are, which is amazing finals performances and Jimmy deserves credit, all of the above. If I'm projecting forward, like it's kind of like the Anthony Davis jump shooting thing. Like, Anthony Davis deserves all this credit for making a ton of amazing contested jump shots in that playoff run. But the reality is, is that like, if you're projecting for next season, he's probably not, he's he's probably not going to be a 50% mid range guy, you know? So, and that's that's all I'm saying with Jimmy is like, Jimmy's finals performance was unbelievable, but we have six years of evidence that he's a below average isolation scorer or, you know, in that Chris Middleton tier, meaning like, He's very good, but there's a lot of guys who are better than him. I, so my, my pushback would be I think he's more reliable in the playoffs because he can get to the free throw line and Middleton can't. For sure. And I, 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 for the record, I, mean, I don't they, think Middleton's his close to team, as good as Jimmy Butler. I'm just saying, yeah, it, I'm it, saying that like I, I, he, his impact goes beyond his stats. 
I'm yeah. just saying that like I don't I think he's closer to what his averages are than 30 point triple double guy. Sure, I, and that's so. My argument would set the center around Jimmy being uniquely impactful. He is one of the most scalable players in the league. I think we've seen if you need him to get 30, he can't. It, you don't want him to have to do it every night, but if you need him to do it, he can't. He's also a super duper underrated playmaker. He's a really good passer. Um, and I, I think his ISO game is more reliable in the playoffs than in other guys's. That Sixers team last year took the Raptors, the eventual champion Raptors, to seven games, but then Bede scoring like 17 points a game on like 37% shooting. Like, and that, a lot of that was due to Jimmy being able to go head-to-head with Kawhi. And not from a scoring standpoint, but just being impactful in so many unique ways. It, it's the same argument that I'd almost make for Draymond four or five years ago being a top 10 player, right? It, the, the numbers are never going to look great. And you know, some of it is dependent on team construct where you can put certain guys around him. Hmm. But if you put those guys around him, he is so impactful that he's going to give your team like conference finals for basically, right? So... I, while I do understand not putting him there for the reasons you laid out, I think he can fit into so many different constructs and be the same amount of impactful or more impactful, depending on where he is, that I think he has a case for top 10. I mean, so you had he was you the had best player on the final. You had him seven, right? Or was it eight? I can't remember. Jimmy? Yeah. I had him nine. I had him nine. Nine, nine. So I yeah, guess I, ha- I had him behind Luka and Jokic. So before the season, he won three playoff series, one when he was a very small role role player with the Bulls, yep. I think, in 2012 or something. And then uh, uh, and then he basically won two first-round playoff series in the Eastern Conference, the terrible, terrible Eastern Conference. Other than that, yep. he, he, he hasn't won a playoff series. So I guess my question for you would be, you know, a player at that level, you know, I would like to see – and I guess his, I guess the other guys in his peer in his his peers in that tier like uh, like Luca and Jokic are also kind of you know lacking the volume of success. So I'm with I I think exactly. again it's splitting hairs because like for me putting him at 11, all I'm doing is I'm putting Dame and James Harden above him, and you're not. Yep. You know, and, so and it's not that. I think complicated. he's been in terrible situations until basically this year. I mean, like. Uniquely bad situation. Chicago tried that whole three alphas thing with him and Wade and Rondo. Yeah. Um, and then he was in Minnesota. He took that Minnesota team to playoffs. A Minnesota franchise that hadn't been to the playoffs in 17 years, and they haven't been since. Mm. And we know the story on Cat and Wiggins now. Those guys aren't winning players. Yeah. Um, and, and then Philly, that organization is a dumpster fire. Most playoff success. And then this year, you know, a Heat team that hadn't been hadn't really sniffed the finals in a while. He took him there. So you're right. And, you're right. And I, I think he, what he has the ability to do is say, okay, I need to, to try to get 30 on this night. I can up my scoring volume. I can try to get to the free throw line more. I can take a couple more jump shots on nights where, you know, Bam has it going. I'm going to be the most impactful defensive player on the floor. You know, on nights where Goron's doing more of the playmaking, I'm going to be a great cutter. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Where most guys I don't think are willing to do that. And I think that is super duper value, valuable. And I think we actually undervalue it the willingness to play different roles at a highly, highly impactful level. And he can do all of them. The only thing he can't do at a super highly impactful level is shoot three-pointers. Mm-hmm. And, and that would be my argument. He does so many things at a, a really elite level. Well, Tommy, I think, I think you have at least got me to open up my mind a little bit on a couple of things. Namely that uh, my James Harden slander may not be enough. 
<laughs> that uh, uh, I actually see the Anthony Davis Giannis thing from a different light, and I understand your case for Kevin Durant as high as three. Um, uh, this is why I wanted to have you on. I think you bring an interesting perspective, and uh, I think you and I disagree on a lot of stuff, which I think is good. Uh, but at the same time, you're not uh, uh, an absolute pain in the ass about it. So that makes it a yep. little bit easier. But uh, anyway, dude, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. That was a good, uh, wow, an hour and a half. Yeah, hour and a half. <laughs> that was cow, I got to get back to work. <laughs> yeah, I hear you, man. I hear you. But uh, thank you so much. I'll, I'm going to try to convert this into an audio file so that I can put it on my podcast feed for all of you who have listened. Um, uh, but again, thanks. And then at some point in the future – uh, during this uh, um, off season, we'll come up with something fun else to talk about just to kill the time. Perfect. All right, brother. Have a good one. All right, man. Later.